Well, it is wonderful to have you all here this morning. As I mentioned, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we are going to begin covering the last section of Hebrews chapter 11 that specifically deals with Abraham. As you recall from the prior teaching that we've been doing, as we've continued through Hebrews chapter 11, we see a continual parade of individuals who are for us examples of godly faith. Throughout this chapter, example after example is given, and the point of these examples isn't just to put people on a pedestal and to have us admire them, although their faith was admirable, The point of all that we're studying here is that the things that these individuals did by faith, we as children of God have the ability to do by faith. In other words, even though this is a hall of faith, a hall of fame of faith, so to speak, it's not something that's untouchable and outside of our reach and that is far beyond our ability in Christ to do. The expectation is is that the faith exercised by every example given in this chapter is a faith that we can emulate if we strive and keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. And so while we can't do the exact historical events identically to what's occurred, because this is past history and certain things were unique, the faith that enabled those things to occur in the way that we have them historically is the same faith we can exercise in our daily lives. And we are coming to the last reference in Hebrews chapter 11, specifically to the faith of Abraham. We're going to be looking, beginning this morning, at verse 17. In fact, this section, verses 17 and 18 and 19, convey an overarching thought. And as I was preparing for this, as I indicated at the beginning of class, I was debating, can I do this in one session or do I need two? And because it was getting long, I decided I better not push myself, I better try and go ahead and take the time to develop it, and we'll cover it over this week and next week. But it makes sense that in this, this last section, we have covered Abraham. He is the most spoken of person in Hebrews chapter 11. Going all the way back to verse 8, the focus is on Abraham, and that focus continues on Abraham into verse 19 with that brief interlude we covered last week about the patriarchs. And it's not surprising that this is the most talked about figure. And probably in a few weeks, we'll get down to verse 23, where we start talking about Moses. And there's a lot said about Moses. And if you look at Judaism, there are no more towering figures. At the time of the writing of the New Testament, the towering figures of Judaism were Abraham, the founder, and Moses, their greatest leader. It's an imperfect analogy, but it's sort of how Americans look at George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. George Washington is the father of our country. We always say that. He's the the first president. And then Abraham Lincoln was this great leader in a time of great turmoil and trials in America. He was able to lead through. There's a similar similarity. Again, it's not in the same category, but it's just for a picture of how these people might be viewed in the eyes of the original recipients of this letter. Abraham was the first, the founder, the father, the ultimate patriarch. Moses was the great historical leader who God used to lead them out of slavery. And so it's not surprising that the writer spends so much time highlighting these two men's lives. But again, 
The point is not to say, well, this is in a different category, a different untouchable area. The point is to say, we have the same faith they did. We have the same God they did, and we have the ability to walk by faith just like they walked by faith. Ultimately, this is given to us so we can follow in their footsteps, not so we can just marvel at what towering figures in history they were. And as we come into our text this morning, we've already looked at various things that Abraham has done. We've, we've covered those in this text, but now we're coming to what would be the ultimate example of his faith. Abraham exercised faith in a situation that I dare say none of us could possibly comprehend much less could we even imagine what would we do in this situation because it's so unique and so incomprehensible. Yet in this unique, incomprehensible, impossible situation, Abraham's obedience was immediate. He didn't hesitate. And because of his actions and because of the faith he exercised by acting, God gives him the ultimate commendations, the highest commendations So let's begin. I'm going to read the text to you. You can follow along in your version. As I indicated always, I read from the New American Standard. But beginning at verse 17, we see this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now again, as I have gone through this chapter, I haven't been outlining it like I traditionally do. I've just been going through these verses and explaining them as we come to each example, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. But this is one of the central events in the history of Abraham's life. And so as we go through this, we're going to be referencing Genesis chapter 22. Now again, we're going to be going back and forth. There's going to be a couple of references where I'll pull over to Genesis chapter 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 through 19, we find the Old Testament account that is being summarized and talked about here in Hebrews chapter 11. And we start out, when we look at verse 17, with words that by now are very familiar because it's the the cornerstone of this chapter. It begins, by faith. And in this case, by faith, Abraham. This is a continual reference to Abraham having exercised faith. Verse 8, we see, by faith, Abraham. Verse 9, we see, by faith. As I taught few weeks ago, even though verse 11 talks about by faith Sarah in the translation, I think the focus of that text is also on Abraham. So we see again, by faith. And in verse 17, Abraham again is front and center. It's by faith Abraham. And whereas verses 11 and 12 dealt with Abraham's faith in relation to the birth of Isaac, verses 17 and 19 are dealing with the time in Abraham's life when God called him to do something unspeakable with relation to this beloved son. Again, the original reference for this is in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. And as we go back and forth, you'll see how this plays out. Verse 17, again, we see, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, we are very familiar, I think, many of us, with this biblical account. And it can cause us to gloss over, because of our familiarity with this, some important information. 
But look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Because this is a situation where the writer of Hebrews is just being very clear that he's referencing exactly what God was doing. So in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, we read this. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he, Abraham, said, here I am. So we understand from the terminology that God was the one testing Abraham. That's what Genesis chapter 22 says, and that is what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 is accurately recounting, the same historical event, and it's very clear God was testing Abraham. That's what the text says. But I want to be careful, and I want us to understand that God was not tempting Abraham. God was testing Abraham. God was not tempting Abraham. I'm going to try and develop this. I'm going to kind of cross-reference this, but that's an important distinction before we get any farther. Testing is not the same as tempting. God wasn't trying to trick Abraham. This wasn't some game God was playing to try and see if he could make Abraham fall. He wasn't setting Abraham up for failure. In fact, God was allowing Abraham the opportunity to succeed and to demonstrate the faith that he had. And I want to be careful to distinguish when God is testing Abraham from this idea of tempting because I have seen and heard over and over Christians sometimes conflate these two terms in their mind and they think they're synonymous. They're not necessarily So I think it's important that we understand that God will never tempt his children to sin. God may test you, but God is never tempting you to sin. And I want you to understand that not only for the text we're looking at, so we understand what was going on with with Abraham and Isaac and God, but so you understand in your own life this distinction. Now, you don't necessarily have to flip there because you've got a hand in Hebrews and a hand in Genesis. But what I'm talking about, the crux of it is found in James 1.13. If you've been here a really long time in this class, the first book I taught through in Faith Builders was James. But James 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, even now, you might say, okay, Joe, I get it. You know, tempting and testing, you've got two different words. One word's testing, one word's tempting. I wasn't confused in the first place. I don't know what you're trying to do. The reason I want to point this out is because you ever study these things, you'll find out that the English translation doesn't make clear what is evident in Greek. I'm glad the English translations make the distinction they make between tempting and testing. But if you run across someone who disregarded the Bible and they didn't believe the Bible, they could try and undermine your faith with this simple account in the life of Abraham as recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Because if you were to look in a Greek text and you were to look at the form of the word that's translated in James 1.13 as tempting or tempt. And then you looked at that form of the word in Hebrews 11, verse 17, it's the exact same word in Greek. It's the exact same form. I mean, I can't pronounce Greek very well, so I won't even try, but it's the same form, the same everything. 
So in the actual Greek text, there's no difference in the word, even though there is a great difference in the meaning of the word. The meaning comes from the context and understanding all of Scripture as a whole. So when we speak of God having tested Abraham, I'll summarize what God's testing is. This is external circumstances that come to bear in a believer's life. That's why when we look at James 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, this is a different word. The testing word in that verse is different in Greek, but the the idea is exactly the same. God sometimes allows external circumstances to come into our lives, and we have to exercise our faith to deal with those circumstances. But God isn't a malicious tyrant who's laying traps for you, hoping to make sure that you fall, as though it's some sadistic game just to watch you suffer. When we have these external circumstances, these circumstances outside of us, these requirements that we do things, that can be God's testing. But when we talk about tempting, as in James 1.13, the context makes it clear this is something entirely different. In fact, James explains a great deal of what he means in verse 13 by verses 14 and 15 of James 1. He says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In this context, lust isn't talking about something sexual. It's talking about an inordinate sinful desire, a desire for something that is sinful, that you want it, you know God says don't, but you want it. And what James is saying is that over time, if you don't kill that lust, then it develops. It's kind of like a seed that's planted, and eventually it waters and starts to grow, and ultimately it can be destructive. The picture is of an ungodly desire taking root and developing, then acting itself out in sin. For a believer, the antidote for that is to mortify the flesh. Galatians 5.24 describes it this way. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. A similar phraseology, similar concept, I won't read it, but in 2 Peter 2... 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19, a very similar idea explaining what fleshly desires are. So what we want to understand and we want to make certain of, so that our thinking doesn't get us on a rabbit trail that is unproductive, we want to make sure when we come to a verse like eleven seventeen in Hebrews, and it says God is testing, this isn't a situation where God was trying to make Abraham sin. What James teaches us, and which is why it's so important to always have a context of the whole counsel of God, that God's testing never involves planting evil desires in your heart. God is not the author of sin. Your sin is never God's fault. I've seen over and over thinking that goes along these things. I've thought some of these things before, not all of them. But you might have the thought go through your mind, God should have known better than to put me in this situation Because, boy, I really desire this sinful thing. This is God's fault because he put me in this situation. No, it's your own sinful desires. Well, God must not mind if I commit this sin or else he wouldn't have given me this opportunity to commit this evil. Boy, he just laid it out on the table. This must be okay. Well, God is sovereign. If he doesn't want me to gauge in this sin, which I'm about to do because that's what I want to do, well, he can stop me. And if he doesn't stop me, it must be okay. 
The wickedness with which we can deceive ourselves is limitless. And we don't want to misunderstand a text like this and think, well, this is God. This is how God does it. God wanted Abraham to sin. God must want me to sin. That's not it at all. It's not even in the equation. Understand, God does not entice us to sin. And when God tested Abraham, he wasn't trying to entice him to sin. He's not the one. God never tempts us to engage in evil. He never gives us these evil desires. They reside within us already. We can't blame God for our sin. So again, I want to clarify, God was not trying to make Abraham sin. God was not trying to make Abraham fail. The testing of Abraham did not involve God placing some kind of desire to sin inside Abraham's heart and seeing if he would act on it. The testing of Abraham was external. Now, did it involve his will and his emotions? Of course it did. I don't doubt that eventually, even though the text does not clarify it and we don't read about it in Scripture, there might have been some internal turmoil when he initially heard what God was commanding. But God wasn't trying to trick him. He wasn't trying to get him to fail. and God wasn't trying to get Abraham to sin. So we're going to look a little bit more at what this testing actually involved. Again, back to verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, again, let's look at chapter 22 of Genesis because this is the more detailed account of this, and the command is very straightforward in Genesis 22, verse 2. God's already decided he's going to test Abraham. He's called Abraham. Abraham says, I'm reporting for duty, God. I'm here. Verse 2 of chapter 22. He said, God, God is the pronoun there. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. There's a sense in which what God said wasn't hard to understand. God's told him, go to a specific place, and then when you get there, I'll show you a more specific place. And when you get to that place, I want you to kill your son. That's the sacrifice that's being talked about there. And I have to admit to you that it's hard for me to get my mind around this. I can't even imagine how I would react if God said to me, Joe, take Rachel, my oldest daughter, go to a certain place and kill her, and this will be an act of worship of me. It's hard to comprehend. And yet, this is what the Word of God says. But this test goes beyond just the staggering act of saying, you need to kill your child. Because Isaac was not just any child. Read back in Hebrews, because this is sort of an explanation, and we're going to be digging deeper into this, but this is telling something about who Isaac was. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he, Abraham, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he, Abraham, to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Now, the significance of Isaac is tied up in this reference to promises. Because when it says, When he, Abraham, who had received the promises, these are promises God had given Abraham, 
This isn't just any old promise. This promise is foundational to everything in human history. In fact, this promise is foundational to our salvation. If you recall a few weeks ago when I talked, or even last week, it was through the seed of Abraham that the Messiah comes. And the seed wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. It's the promise, if you look down in verse 12 of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 12, Therefore there was born of even one man, and him as good as dead as that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. But I want you to go with me back to the book of Genesis because I'm going to highlight a few things. So if you've got Genesis chapter 22 held, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. One of the things I've really enjoyed about studying the book of Hebrews is it forces you into the Old Testament every week. It's a great study because everything is building on God's word of the Old Testament. And it's a great discipline that we have to go back to make sure we're understanding exactly what occurred. We've read some of these scriptures before. But I want you to see God promising Abraham things. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Flip over one chapter to Genesis 13. We see in Genesis chapter 13 and verses 14 through 16 this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Flip over two chapters to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. the very least, Abraham was saved at that point. Flip over a couple more chapters. Genesis chapter 17. Verses 5 to 7 of Genesis 17. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. This is all what's being referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about he who had received the promises. God promised Abraham over and over and over these things. It's the same, you could frame it in the same basic promise. My seminary professor used to keep drilling into our heads. He was promised land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. But the cornerstone of all of this revolved around a specific son. 
And what the writer is making clear is he's zeroing in on the central truth of God's promises. All of the promises to Abraham focused on Isaac. In Genesis 17, look down a little bit further. I've read this before as we're going through this, but I think it's important for setting the backdrop to read again. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 17. I'll begin there through verse 21. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nation. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Just as an aside, and I've covered this before, Abraham had a son named Ishmael that came through Hagar. He's just thinking, okay, God, no, 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 you're just out there, God. Ishmael, he's the man. Verse 19, but God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I'll make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. I think by now this should penetrate our minds that even despite what Abraham thought, And even despite Abraham and Sarah's aborted attempt to circumvent God and get a son through Ishmael, God was never going to use Ishmael. He had his own blessings, he'd have his own life, he'd have his own future. But God's promise and God's covenant was always going to be through Isaac. Ultimately, without Isaac, from a human standpoint, You cut off the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture is. So I want you to stop with me and think where we are in the life of Abraham. We just read God saying to Abraham, the son you can see, Ishmael, isn't the future. My covenant is with a son that you'll name. I've got his name picked out, and he's not even born yet, but he'll be born next year, and it's going to be through Isaac. And we've already read that Abraham believed God, and God ultimately delivered on his promise. Isaac was born. Again, we talked about this. That's the focus of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Sarah was barren, and her body was past childbearing. From a physical standpoint, she was done. Beyond that, the text makes it clear Abraham's body was past childbearing. He couldn't produce what was necessary to be a father of a child. So from a human standpoint, it was physically impossible for them to have a child. And God said, no, the child of the promise is Isaac. I'm going to bring it about. And God did it. Isaac was born and Abraham could rejoice at God's faithfulness. Can't imagine how amazing it must have been. For Abraham to see that what God said came to pass, even though it was physically impossible, it was humanly impossible, God worked a miracle, and I have this son in my old age, and God has said that the blessing to all the nations for all time is going to come through this son. And we don't know 
the exact gap in time between the events of Genesis chapter 22 and when Isaac had been born. I read a lot about this. It seems clear he wasn't a little boy when Genesis chapter 22 occurred. The Bible doesn't specifically say how old he was, but we know, number one, he was able to dialogue with his dad and think rationally. He understood the concept of worship, because if you recall, well, you didn't read it today, but later he even asked his dad, where's the sacrifice? We're going to worship. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the ram? He was big enough that he could carry a heavy load. He was carrying the firewood. I've read estimates that he was anywhere from 16 to 33. The point is, there was a substantial period of time after Isaac was born where it seems like Abraham could have just been enjoying the fruits of what God had blessed him with. He was promised this child, and you watch this child grow up, and he's weaned from his mother, and he continues to grow, and it had to be a great sense of joy and satisfaction. So when Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, when that event occurred, it had to be heart-stopping. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Like I said, it's not hard to understand. He was telling him to kill Isaac. But we want to make sure that we understand how profound this is. Because God had told Abraham, you only have one son, that's the promise. You have only one son through whom all the blessings will come. All of the promises of God to Abraham for a nation and descendants beyond the sand, beyond the stars in the heavens, all center on the child of promise, which is Isaac. And God is saying to Abraham, I want you to kill the child of promise. Everything in your future, all of your hope, the covenant that I promised to make with you is through Isaac. Go kill him. Again, I can't imagine what goes through your mind. If Isaac's dead, God's promises and word can't be fulfilled. There's no other son that can step in. God made it clear. Ishmael can't do this. It's only Isaac. Isaac is the only one. So God's very word, God's very character is at stake. Was God lying when he told Abraham that Isaac was the son of promise? Did God change his mind? Did he have one plan for all eternity and then suddenly turn on a dime and say, ah, I changed my mind? Abraham had to process all of this. And he had to deal with all of this. And we'll find out as we come back next week and we finish looking at these verses, Abraham doesn't hesitate. All of the struggles and the turmoils, I've got to believe that was a sleepless night. What we find and we'll look at next week is Genesis chapter 22, Abraham woke up and went. He didn't hesitate. Again, we know the end of the story. Isaac didn't die. But Abraham didn't know that. So we'll look at his obedience, in spite of all of these things, when we come back to this text next week. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Thank you for being here. I look forward to finishing this next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we are very familiar with certain passages of the, of the Bible. Lord, even as an unbeliever, I at least knew something about a story 
of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. But Lord, I pray that you would help us understand the truth you have for us here. Lord, you've not called us to offer a child like this. One of our children is not the foundation for the covenant through whom Messiah would be born. And yet, even when he was asked to do something that had to seem incomprehensible and impossible, Abraham's faith allowed him to act. Lord, again, we aren't in this exact situation. But there are circumstances in our life that occur where we understand from your word, obedience looks like a certain thing, and yet that obedience can seem impossible. Lord, we can waver and we can doubt and we can question. We pray that you would give us the faith to respond in obedience to whatever you've called us to do. No matter how impossible, no matter how costly, Lord, help us to understand that if you've called us to do something, we can do it with confidence that you will glorify yourself and that you will enable us by faith to accomplish all that you've sent us to do. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we prepare to hear from Pastor Steve that we would be able to focus on the truths of Psalm 23. Pray that you give Pastor Steve great boldness and freedom and that you would be upon him by your Holy Spirit so that he could proclaim truth with accuracy but great boldness. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear so that we could act on your word. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.